welcome back to our New Testament survey. Uh, we're working our way through the New Testament, uh, one book at a time, more or less, although this evening I hope to do uh, more. Uh, we are currently uh, working our way through Paul's epistles, and we have finished uh, his epistles to the churches. And so this evening uh, we begin to look at uh, what is commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles. Uh, this would be First and Second Timothy and Titus. Uh, my hope for this evening is to make it through First Timothy and Titus, and then next week to look at Second Timothy and Philemon. Philemon is not a pastoral epistle, uh, but it is one written to an individual, and that's the reason it's not grouped with uh, the letters to the churches, but rather grouped with these letters to Timothy and Titus because it's written to uh, an individual. So uh, we'll gang it up with 2 Timothy, but 1 Timothy and Titus are very, very similar, uh, and so I thought we'd try and work our way through both of them this evening. The uh, pastoral epistles are attested by the early church as early as the second century as being penned by Paul uh, and given to Timothy and Titus uh, to instruct them in their duties as they established churches, appointed elders, uh, and organized the churches uh, that were under their care. And, and these weren't seriously questioned by anybody throughout church history until the 19th century. Um, but there are uh, objections to these letters as far as whether or not they're authentic, uh, written by Paul or written by somebody later. Uh, but most of those objections come from uh, people really that are outside the faith, uh, textual critics and scholars that are not uh, true believers. So uh, we'll go with uh, the testimony of the church uh, down through the ages. It says these were, in fact, written by the apostle uh, for the good of the churches. Pinpointing the date as to when these were written is a little difficult. Uh, we have Paul uh, from A.D. 61 to about A.D. 63 in prison in Rome, uh, and he writes what we call the prison epistles, which are uh, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, uh, which is grouped here with these. And then in 63, sometime in 63, he's released, uh, and it seems like maybe there was an additional... Uh, missionary journey that Paul took that wasn't recorded in the book of Acts. Uh, and we'll see some of that this evening in 1 Timothy and Titus. There are references there. Uh, he leaves Titus on Crete to put what remains in order and to appoint elders in all of the churches. And yet, from the book of Acts, it looks like Paul barely set foot on Crete, if at all, uh, in Acts 27. So it almost appears as if he was there on his way to Rome uh, when he was under guard and being taken to Rome as a prisoner, and then maybe came back to Crete when he was released and established some churches there, uh, and then has some other plans that he mentions to Timothy and Titus. Uh, and so it looks like these letters were probably written between A.D. 63 and 65 uh, because then uh, in A.D. 65, Paul is once again uh, in prison in Rome and then is beheaded in A.D. 66. Uh, and so he wrote Second Timothy uh, there at the end, right shortly before his death. So that is the, the date at which these epistles were written. Uh, Philemon, again, is actually written earlier, but it's grouped with these because it is an individual rather letter rather than uh, a church letter. Uh, so 
It seems likely that what happened is when Paul was released from Rome, that he went back to Crete. Uh, Maybe he had gotten a sense of the need for the gospel uh, when they stopped there briefly on his way to Rome. And so when he's released, he goes back to Crete, uh, works there for a little bit, leaves Titus, then goes to Ephesus, leaves Timothy there, and then goes on to Macedonia Uh, possibly on his way to Spain. In fact, there are early church uh, testimonies that say that he actually did make it to Spain, uh, even though it's not recorded for us in the scripture. So um, that would kind of be the the scenario of what's happening. So why does he write these letters uh, to these two men? He's just seen them. Uh, By all accounts, he wrote these letters within a couple of months of having left them Uh, in these two locations. So why write them these letters? Well, he's left them to establish these churches, to appoint elders and to organize uh, the government of the church and the life of the church in these two locations. And, And so he's got a concern for them, and we'll see some of what those concerns are. And so uh, he writes these letters to them to help them guard against false teaching uh, and to help give them some instruction on how to organize the church. Uh, And now we'll see that the nature of the false teaching that he's dealing with, particularly in Ephesus, uh, is not real clear. It appears to be that there is some element of Jewish legalism, such as we've seen in Galatians and some of the other letters, but mixed with some early Greek philosophy that would be kind of... uh, early Gnosticism, Uh, and so it's some sort of syncretism between Jewish legalism and Greek Gnosticism. Uh, But this false teaching uh, has to be addressed, and we've seen this throughout Paul's letters. He's constantly writing to the churches and now writing to Timothy and Titus uh, to address this issue of false teaching. Uh, And so we think, goodness, This is a continuing thing that Paul constantly has to deal with. Is there no break from this false teaching? Well, no, there's not. Uh, The false teaching first arose where? Well, Genesis 3, right, with Satan questioning uh, the word of God. And it has continued ever since then. And we'll actually see in the letters here that Paul tells Timothy that he should expect uh, false teaching uh, until the end. So this is something that constantly must be dealt with, and that's the reason why Paul has to do this. So as he writes these uh, pastoral letters to instruct these men and how to organize the church and to appoint elders, uh, there are a couple of themes that we'll see recurring over and over again. Uh, One is the person and the work of Christ, uh, the gospel, as the basis for the life of the church. Uh, obviously, as he's addressing false teaching and the duty and job of elders, pastors within the church, uh, we're going to see a contrast between truth and error uh, and, and what our commitment to the truth should be. Uh, and then he's dealing with the life of the church, the organization of the church, how the church conducts its life. Uh, and so there will be a lot of focus on uh, holiness for God's people and how they live their lives as believers in relationship with one another within the church. Um, If we think back to the Old Testament, uh, to the nation of Israel, uh, the nature of Israel's God uh, as being so distinct and unique, different from the gods of all the pagan religions around them, uh, that's another uh, theme that's kind of in the background here as Paul is 
giving them instructions in order to counter false teaching. Uh, he must focus on the nature of God. Uh, truth versus the lie. Uh, like I said, from Genesis 3 forward and, and continuing even now. Uh, and that holiness of God's people was a theme throughout the Old Testament. And then, you know, the government of the nation of Israel, particularly with uh, elders who would govern. Uh, we see Moses appointing people to help him uh, manage the government of the people. And we see that the nation of Israel had elders. Uh, and so it's not a one-for-one -one corollary, but uh, we see that here, that the church is now the nation of God, a kingdom of priests. And so Paul is helping to organize it and to structure it with elders so that the people can be cared for. So let's look at 1 Timothy. And so if you would turn there with me in your Bibles. For a quick outline, there are six chapters in Timothy, and they pretty much can be outlined just summarizing each chapter. Chapter 1 would be No Other Doctrine. Chapter 2 would be Guidelines for Corporate Worship in the Church. Chapter 3, Guidelines for Church Officers. Uh, chapter 4 would be uh, Dealing with False Teaching. Chapter 5 would be Instructions Paul Gives Timothy on How to Care for the Congregation. And then Chapter 6 would be an Exhortation to Faithfulness in Ministry. So as we look at uh, Chapter 1 here in 1 Timothy, we see that uh, Paul addresses Timothy uh, like he does in all of his other letters, establishes his identity here at the beginning of the letter. He calls Timothy in, in verse 2 a true son in the faith. And so we see this relationship that Paul has. He will say the same thing to Titus in his letter to Titus. And so these two men were close associates of the Apostle Paul uh, that he viewed uh, as sons in the faith. He had trained them. He had taught them. They had been by his side as he was on missionary journeys. And so they are his most trusted uh, companions. And so he has left them here to work in these churches. In verse 3, he then presents a charge uh, to Timothy. He says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Uh, so that's the really the theme of the letter is that Timothy is to put a halt to the false teaching in the church there in Ephesus to make sure that the doctrine that is taught is that which uh, has been handed down from the apostles, the doctrine that is uh, in accord with the gospel. He tells him in verse 4 to avoid uh, pointless debates, and so uh, Timothy has to put a stop to false teaching, but he has to have wisdom to know uh, what arguments not to engage in, uh, what not to get caught up in uh, as far as debates go, uh, because these debates and disputes will not produce good fruit. Uh, but, but then he says uh, that these are pointless debates that he is to avoid, and he says in verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. So that's the purpose of the law, and we see that uh, even in uh, Christ's teaching, which he is summarizing the law when they ask him, what is the greatest commandment? He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And the next is like unto it, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the purpose of God's law 
uh, is for us to love God and to love our neighbors. And that's what Paul says here, that the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. In verse 6, he says, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. So they've, the false teachers have missed the point of the law. But if we think about this, false teaching is somewhat attractive. I mean, it was attractive to Eve. It's attractive throughout all of Paul's letters. There are constantly people listening to the false teachers. Well, why is that? Well, he'll tell Timothy later, because the false teachers are telling people what they want to hear. They have itching ears. The false teachers are telling them what they want to hear. And, and partly, the false teaching oftentimes, as we see, centers around the law. Right? They're teaching that you must be circumcised or that these various aspects of the law. And that is attractive to us because we can kind of wrap our hands around that and go, okay, here's the checklist of the things that I have to do in order to be right with God. But there's nothing that we can do to be right with God other than trust in Christ's finished work. Right? Our good works, we'll see, follow after that. And Paul will talk about our good works in these letters. But... False teaching has an appeal to us because it scratches that itch that we have to want to justify ourselves. And so the false teachers have missed the point of the law. And so he says in verse 8, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So the law must be used properly, not for justification, but for teaching us how to love God and how to love each other properly. So he says in verses 9 through 11, uh, a couple of purposes of the law, that it exposes our sin and that it instructs us in holy living. And so uh, we see this even in the Reformed confessions and creeds, in our own confession of faith. Uh, it will talk about the purpose of the law. Uh, and, and so these are two of the purposes of the law, to expose our sin and drive us to Christ and then conversely, once we have come to Christ, to instruct us in holy living that we might uh, live as those who are in Christ by faith. Paul then offers himself as an example uh, of a sinner who previously misused the law but has been converted by grace in verses 12 through 16. Uh, he talks about his own example in, in this way. In verse 17, he then uh, concludes with this uh, wonderful benediction now to the king eternal immortal invisible to god who alone is wise be honor and glory forever and ever amen uh, wonderful benediction of praise to god uh, as paul talks about how god has saved him uh, and offers himself as an example to the young timothy and then in verses 18 through 20 here at the end of chapter one paul uh, names two men Hymenaeus and Alexander, uh, who had gone so far in their false teaching that they had had to been turned over to Satan uh, so that they might learn not to blaspheme. Uh, so the false teaching must be taken seriously, even to the point uh, of putting people out of fellowship over it. Uh, and so he instructs and charges Timothy uh, that he must uh, do this task, even though it is difficult. In chapter 2, he then begins to give some guidelines for corporate prayer, uh, for corporate worship in the church. Uh, first of all, in verses 1 through 2, he says that the church should pray for civil government officials, uh, and he offers a reason for that. Uh, he says that we're to pray and give thanks 
uh, for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Uh, and so that might remind us of things that we just heard in the last two letters that we looked at, First and Second Thessalonians, in both of which Paul instructed people uh, to live uh, quiet lives and to eat their own bread, to work with their own hands. Uh, and so he's saying the same thing here. And he, he says that we should pray for our government officials so that we can do that. Uh, so we should be praying uh, for an end to persecution where it's happening. We should be praying for uh, good laws to be passed that would allow us uh, to practice our faith uh, and lead quiet, peaceable lives uh, with reverence and godliness without having uh, confrontation with the government. And he says that this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, uh, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So if we have peace uh, with the government, then we are allowed to proclaim the gospel uh, without having uh, to face the sorts of persecution that Paul himself often faces, uh, and it will allow uh, the gospel message to spread openly with no interference. But then in verses 5 through 7, he reminds us that the gospel is the only way uh, to God. There is no other means of coming to uh, salvation than through Jesus Christ uh, and the message of him uh, crucified for us. And so he reminds Timothy that he was appointed, that Paul himself was appointed as a preacher and an apostle uh, to proclaim these things to the Gentiles. In verse 8, therefore, uh, because it pleases God for us to lead, live these quiet and peaceable lives, uh, he begins to say, teach us how we should live. Uh, he first says that he desires that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so uh, it seems that there may have been some conflict within the church. And so Paul is suggesting that the men in the church should learn to worship together peacefully without wrath uh, and without doubting. They shouldn't quarrel within the church uh, and they shouldn't use public prayer as a platform uh, against one another, that they should use prayer for what it is intended for. Interestingly, he then says in verse 9, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So his point is, in like manner, the immodest dress that might we might, he's telling them to dress modestly and to adorn themselves modestly. Uh, if they do otherwise, it's disruptive to worship. It's as disruptive as the men misusing uh, the public prayer in the corporate worship. Uh, they're showing up other women uh, with their fancy clothes, with their braided hair, gold and pearls and costly clothing, uh, but instead they should seek to not cause a scene in church by the way they're dressed, but rather to dress modestly and humbly so that the focus can be on worshiping God and not on what everyone is wearing. Uh, so then he says in verses 11 through 12, uh, he addresses the issue of women uh, teaching or keeping silent in the church. Uh, he says that they are to learn in silence with all submission and that they are not 
to teach or have authority over a man. And then he roots this uh, not in a cultural argument, but in creation itself, in the created order. So uh, some people will say, well, Paul's prohibition against women as pastors or elders in the church uh, was simply a cultural thing. Well, that's nonsense. Uh, Christ himself and Paul as his apostle were uh, never squeamish about challenging uh, cultural assumptions as far as what God's church would do. And here he roots this in creation, not in the culture. So the women are prohibited from holding office in the church. And then in chapter 3, he begins to talk about these offices in the church, the offices that would, uh, in fact, have this authority and teach. And so he says, Uh, He addresses the issue first of elders and then of deacons. And he says in verse 3 that this is a faithful, in chapter 3, verse 1, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Uh, And so we might note that bishop, overseer, pastor, elder, all used interchangeably uh, throughout the New Testament to refer to this one office uh, of elder. And so, Paul is going to now tell us uh, what the requirements are for an elder. In verses 2 through 3, he addresses uh, the moral requirements for an elder, that he is to be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Uh, you can see there's a lot of knots there, things that he is not to be. Uh, and the one thing that he is uh, to do is to be able to teach. Most of these requirements really have more to do with character than they do with ability. Uh, and so character uh, is important here. Now when he says that he must be blameless, does that mean that your elders uh, can never sin? Obviously not, or we wouldn't have any elders, right? Uh, And so what he is saying is simply that uh, the elders must be those who are not um, bringing shame on the church or uh, reproach on the gospel by their lifestyle. Uh, I think often of the advice that my dad gave me uh, when Lauren and I first found out that we were pregnant with Hattie. Uh, And I think it's good advice for elders as well as for fathers. But he told me, he said, remember, uh, your children do not need a perfect father. They need a repentant father. Uh, And I think the same is true of elders when it says that they must be blameless. It doesn't mean they have to be without sin. uh, But part of being blameless would be acknowledging our sin with humility and repenting of it uh, when necessary. And so there's a whole list of things uh, that the elder is supposed to be uh, in relation to uh, his character. In verses 4 and 5, he addresses uh, his own household and how it is a proving ground for the office of elder. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So how an elder runs his own household uh, is the largest recommendation for how well he's going to uh, pastor or care for the church of God. Uh, Verse 6 tells us that he can't be a new believer uh, because he will be given to pride and and be condemned. And then verse 7 says that he must have a good testimony from those who are outside the church. So here are the, the 
requirements that Paul gives us for an elder. And then in verse 8, he begins to address the issue of deacons. He says, likewise, deacons. And then he gives us uh, the requirements for deacons. And it's very similar, you might notice, to the requirements for an elder. Uh, Reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money. Uh, So, again, character, uh, how he conducts his life, and it's very similar to the requirements for an elder. Notice in verse 9 that the deacon is to hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So the deacon is to be a mature believer who understands the gospel, who holds fast to it uh, with a pure conscience, but there's no requirement here that he be able to teach. So that's the distinction between an elder and a deacon. And then in verse 10, it says, "...but let these also first be tested." Then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So again, there's that idea that deacons have to be blameless. Not sinless, but blameless. Not bringing reproach on the church because they refuse to repent when necessary. Not living a lifestyle of unrepentant sin in these various categories that he has listed. Now he goes in verse 11, he says, likewise, their wives must be, and he gives us some requirements for a deacon's wife. Now the interesting thing is, is that verse 10 said, but let these also first be tested. And so I take it that not only is the home a proving ground for whether an elder will make a good elder, but the home is also a proving ground for whether a deacon will make a good deacon. Uh, Does he run his household well? If he doesn't, How will he help conduct the affairs of God's church? Uh, So we're given the instructions for how his household should be run. Uh, And then in verse 13, and I kind of chuckled at this the other night, verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. There's a blessing here for deacons. There's not one for elders. (laughs) I told Lord, I'm a little jealous now. Um, but there's a blessing here for deacons who, who do their job well, who serve well. Uh, and so we have elders and deacons. Now, again, like I said, the biggest distinction between them is that elders must be able to teach and deacons, that requirement is not there. Does that mean deacons can't teach? Obviously not. If we go back to the book of Acts, uh, we see Stephen in Acts 7, Philip in Acts 8, They knew the Bible. They knew their gospel well. They could defend the faith. uh, They could evangelize. They could preach to the lost. But they're not required to be able to teach uh, in order to serve as a deacon. Uh, But they must be mature men who know the gospel and hold fast to it. So then in verse uh, 14 and 15, uh, Paul then says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Uh, These things I take to be all of chapter 2 and 3, how we are to conduct ourselves in the church, uh, the life of the church, how the men in the church are to conduct themselves, how prayer is to be handled, how the women in the church are to conduct themselves, how the elders and deacons are to conduct themselves, uh, so that we might know how to behave in the church. And then in verse 16, we have this uh, 
him to Christ. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Uh, what a wonderful hymn, uh, glorifying the gospel message and, and its accomplishments in the world. But in verse chapter 4, uh, Paul then begins to address the false teaching that Timothy uh, needs to put an end to. Uh, and he begins by saying, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. And he continues, So latter times, well, it's clear from all of the New Testament that from the ascension of Christ forward, we are in the end times. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, Timothy, this false teaching that has existed since Genesis chapter 3, you've been with me when I wrote letters to the churches because of the false teaching they were combating. Here you are in Ephesus. You're facing false teaching. You should expect it. It will always be something that the church has to deal with and that the elders must guard against. And so there will be always be those uh, who engage in false teaching, who are deceived by uh, the lies and the hypocrisy of the false teachers. Uh, and so he begins to instruct Timothy and uh, in how to guard against this false teaching. In verse 6, uh, he tells Timothy that he must teach the truth. He says, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourishing nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Uh, and so he is to instruct the church in all of these things that Paul has given him as far as elders, deacons, and the life of the men and the women in the church, uh, to nourish them in the faith and to carefully follow, as he'll talk in Second Timothy, that pattern of sound words. But in contrast, he is to reject profane and old wives' fables, uh, and exercise yourself toward godliness. Uh, so he must practice godliness in order to counter false teaching. He must reject the false teaching, and he must practice and exercise himself uh, for godliness. And so uh, in the next paragraph, beginning in verse 12 through uh, the end of the chapter, uh, Paul tells him that he needs to watch uh, his life and his doctrine, uh, not just that he must teach the right things, but he himself must actually live according to it. And he said that the false teachers in verse 2 uh, were speaking lies and hypocrisy. So Timothy can't tell the elders and the deacons, here's the sort of character that you men need to have, and then not demonstrate that sort of character himself. Uh, he needs to take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, he says in verse 16. And so Timothy is to set an example for the church uh, in what it looks like to live a godly life. In chapter 5, then, Paul begins to give him some instructions on in how to care for the congregation. Again, Old Testament Israel uh, was given all sorts of laws uh, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about instruction and how they were to treat one another and care for the poor and the needy and the slaves uh, and the foreigners who were among them. And so here in chapter 5, uh, Paul gives Timothy instructions for how the church is to care for uh, one another. And so he tells him in verses 1 and 2 uh, that he is to not 
Not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters with all purity. And so you can see that uh, Timothy's relationship to the people in the church, uh, it's like a family. Older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers and sisters. Uh, And so that's how Timothy needs to think about this. It's the household of God. It's a family. And so we think we treat one another with love and respect as family. In verses 3 through 10, he then gives us instruction about how to care for widows in the church and how a widow should conduct herself. Uh, and he says that we are to honor widows who are really widows. Uh, and then he goes on to say that if a widow has family who can care for her, the family should care for her rather than put that burden on the church. Uh, and then the church is to care for those who are really in need. In verse 4, uh, he says that it pleases God, it is good and acceptable before God uh, for family to care for the widows that are in their own household, uh, rather than to expect the church to do so. This is a motivation that we will see throughout these pastoral epistles, uh, is this idea of pleasing God rather than serving ourselves, uh, but that we should be looking to do that which is good and acceptable and pleasing before God. In verses 11 through 15, he then says that younger widows, those who are under the age of 60, uh, should remarry. They they should not remain a widow, but they should remarry. Uh, And interestingly, he had said that the false teachers back in chapter 4 in verse 3 were forbidding to marry. And so we wonder if that uh, might not be some of what Paul is addressing here. But he says in in chapter 5, verse 11, But refuse the younger widows, uh, for when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. Uh, And so he says that they should, that they should marry. And and then he tells us how they should live, uh, that the false teachers may forbid this, but Paul is commanding that they marry. Uh, basically what he tells us is that idleness is the devil's playground. Uh, And so if they are idle and have too much time on their hands, uh, they're going to become gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not, he says in verse 13. So they are to marry, he says in verse 14, to bear children, manage the house, and give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Uh, So the younger women are to marry if they're widowed under the age of 60. In verse 16, uh, he had told us, If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened, that it may relieve those who are really widows. So family is first to provide, and then the church would care for those who are truly in need. In verses 17 through 20, uh, he then talks about the relationship of the congregation to its elders, uh, that they should provide for their elders and protect their elders. They are to provide for those who are laboring at teaching, and they are also to protect them uh, against slander and against false charges. In verses 21 through 25, he then gives some personal instructions to Timothy, uh, telling him that he is not to show partiality uh, in laying hands on people, uh, that he is to care for his own health, uh, to keep himself healthy so that he can be of service to the church. Uh, and that he is to be discerning and not naive. Uh, He needs to know that some men's sins, he says in verse 24, are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, 
but those of some men follow later. So Timothy is going to need to be discerning uh, as a pastor uh, to know uh, who is a false teacher and who is not. Some good works, he says in 25, are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Uh, So Timothy needs this discernment so that he can know right from wrong and true from false. In chapter 6, Paul then exhorts Timothy to faithfulness in ministry. Uh, He begins chapter 6, the first two verses really could be grouped with Uh, The last part as far as how the church conducts itself, he addresses bond servants uh, and tells them that they are to uh, obey their masters, uh, to uh, serve their earthly masters well so that they do not bring condemnation on themselves uh, and that they should not uh, despise their earthly masters if they are Christians uh, because they are brethren uh, and so they should serve them Uh, Because, he says, those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Uh, And so he tells Timothy to teach and exhort these things. And so that would be all of this that came before. This is what you are to teach the church about how it conducts uh, its life. In verses 3 through 10, he then goes back to this idea of the false teachers. They are destitute of the truth, he says. They cause division in the church and strife uh, between members of the church family. They use the church for their own personal gain. And so he instructs Timothy, saying we must not be ruled by greed, but we should learn uh, contentment in Christ. In verses 11 through 14, He then says, in contrast to the false teachers, that we should pursue godliness and not worldliness. We should flee uh, these things that the false teachers did, but pursue after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. In verses 15 through 16, uh, he says that Christ uh, is above all. He says that, and backing up in verse 14, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless, until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man hath seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So the motivation... Uh, Part of the motivation for Timothy uh, teaching these things and organizing the church this way uh, is to keep these commandments until Christ's return, this hope of Christ's return. And then he gives, uh, once again, this uh, wonderful benediction, uh, so to speak here, speaking about Christ as the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is above all. Find my spot, my notes again. Um, So in verses 17 through 19, he then reminds us of the eternal riches and reward that await us, which are better uh, than any earthly gain that we might get. And then in verses 20 through 21, uh, he again instructs Timothy to guard the gospel. It is the lifeblood of a healthy church. Uh, And so he says, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So the whole idea here in 1 Timothy is that a rightly ordered church, guarding against false teaching and motivated by a desire to please God rather than serve ourselves, 
uh, is the means that God has ordained for our discipleship and for the life of his people. Uh, Just as the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was organized as a nation, the church is organized as a family, and Paul has instructed us in how we are to live together as family. Now, if we turn over uh, to the book of Titus, we'll skip over 2 Timothy, and we'll come back to it next week. Uh, But here we have another epistle dealing with many of the same issues. Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus. He has left Titus on the island of Crete, instructed him to appoint good teachers or elders in the church and to teach the truth. Those are the two main themes of the book of Titus, uh, to appoint good teachers and to teach the truth. So preservation of the message by having faithful men and proclamation of the message by those faithful men. There are only uh, three chapters here. It's a rather short book and to the point, uh, and it deals with many of the same issues that were dealt with uh, in 1 Timothy. Uh, But notice in Paul's greeting here at the very beginning of the letter, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. Uh, And so this idea of truth is very important uh, here because Titus also is facing some false teachers uh, in the churches on the island of Crete. But in verse 2, he says, In hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. Uh, And so Paul uh, brings in this idea of our hope for eternity, hope of eternal life. Uh, Paul is not yet at the point that he will be when he writes 2 Timothy, where he knows that the end of his life is coming, but I I think that he does realize that he is nearing the end of his ministry, and so he begins to focus more uh, on eternity and and what is to come. In verse 3, he again uh, speaks of the word. Uh, He says, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Well, the word is the truth, uh, and so it is to be preached, and so Paul has been appointed to such. So then he addresses Titus in verse 4 as a true son in our common faith uh, and gives him a greeting, and then he jumps right into why he has written the letter, why he left Titus on the island of Crete in verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So it's almost impossible from Acts 27 to to think that Paul would have had time uh, to start churches in multiple cities uh, there on the island of Crete. He was in one port, and it's not even clear that he even left the boat. So it is Uh, does seem likely that he came back to Crete after he was released from prison and spent some amount of time there visiting the different cities, preaching, uh, and churches are started. And so Paul is to appoint, or telling Titus to appoint elders in these churches in every city. He then, again, gives us uh, the requirement for elders. And notice uh, also that in verse 5, he told Titus to appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Not an elder in each city, but elders in each city. So there are to be a plurality of elders, multiple elders in each local church. He then gives us the requirements uh, in verses 6 through 9, that if a man is blameless, 
the husband of one wife, having children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination, for a bishop must be blameless, there's that word again, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money. A lot of things he is not to be, and then in verse 8, but... Here are the things he is to be, hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. So, again, he addresses the elder's family, uh, those things that he must not be, those things that he must be, and then in verse 9, what he must do. He must be able to teach uh, by sound doctrine, to exhort and convict uh, those who contradict the, the gospel message. In verse 10, <clears throat> he then uh, begins to address the false teachers he sa- uh, that Titus will face. He says, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So it appears that, again, once again, we have Jewish legalism at play, uh, even here on the island of Crete, teaching that they must be circumcised. He says in verse 10, their mouths must be stopped. Uh, And so he's giving Titus really stark uh, commands to put an end to this false teaching, not allow them to spread this false teaching in the church. In verse 13, he says that he is to rebuke them sharply. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. So Titus's job is not just uh, to kick false teachers out of the church. He is to rebuke them. He is to see that their mouths are stopped, that they can't continue to teach these things, but he is actually to instruct them so that they can be sound in the faith. Uh, So Titus knows what the truth is, and he is supposed to teach, first of all, the false teachers, instruct them so that they can be sound in the faith. In verse 16, he says that they deny God by their works, Uh, which is interesting. He says, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, it's interesting. The false teachers are teaching that you have to be circumcised. They're teaching you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be a Christian. You have to keep the law. You have to do these things. And Paul says that by doing those things, they are denying God. Those works that they're doing are not good works. But we are, they're disqualified from every good work. But he will go on to instruct Timothy that we are, in fact, to do good works. And so we'll find out what those good works are. But they are not circumcision and the keeping of the law for our justification. He then says in chapter 2 that Timothy, Titus, sorry, is to teach sound doctrine. Uh, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. He then gives him uh, instructions for different categories of people within the congregation. So just as he had done uh, in his letter to Timothy, instructing him about the officers in the church and then how to conduct the life of the church, uh, he's doing the same thing here. He doesn't specifically address deacons here in Titus, only elders, but then he's going to talk about uh, the life of the church. He first addresses older men, uh, that Titus is to instruct the older men. Uh, And he gives a list of six things that Titus is to instruct them to be. Sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. 
Uh, and so there's the group of older men that, that Titus is to instruct. Older women, Titus is given five things that he is to instruct them in. The older women, likewise. Uh, and so remember, verse 1, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. So here in verse 3, the older women likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things, that they admonish the young women. So interestingly, we'll see that Titus is to instruct the older men, the older women, and the younger men. But the younger women are to be instructed by the older women. Uh, So in verse 6, he will say, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded. So He's to instruct the older men in verse 2, likewise the older women in verse 3, likewise the younger men in verse 6. Uh, and again, he is given uh, five things. He is inst- to instruct the younger men in particularly that they be of sound mind, that they not be wild. Uh, we think about young men have a tendency to be wild, so uh, he is to exhort them to be sober-minded. Uh, but the younger women are to be instructed by the older women. In verse 4, uh, they are to admo- the older women are to admonish the young women to do a number of things, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Uh, so, you older ladies here, I mean, first of all, our culture celebrates youth and frowns on age. But that's not how the scripture speaks about these things, right? In the scriptures, age is a blessing. It's something that is often associated with wisdom uh, and maturity in the faith. And so you older women, you have a special place in the church to help instruct the younger women. You younger women, if the older women are not instructing you, ask them to do it. Victoria, you're the only... Well, Victoria and... Yeah, there's, there's another one hiding on the floor down there, but, um, or in the back. There she is. Uh, and ask the older women to instruct you, uh, to help you to learn these things. Uh, they have experience that is valuable to you. The younger men, uh, Titus was to instruct them to be sober-minded. And then in verse 7, he said, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern. So Titus is not just to instruct the younger men in one thing, but he is to set a pattern for them by his own behavior. So much like the older women will instruct the younger women, Titus, by his own life, will instruct the younger men. He is to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. So notice for the young women and the young men both, uh, the result of their instruction is in verse 5 that the word of God may not be blasphemed and in verse 8 that one who is opponent may be be ashamed having nothing evil to say of you. So if the church is functioning properly, uh, the younger people are being discipled, uh, this will uh, be a preventative measure to keep uh, the outside world from uh, having evil things to say about the church. In verse 9 and 10, he then again addresses bondservants, that they be obedient uh, to their masters, uh, pleasing in all things, uh, that they are good workers. And again, that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. So these various groups of people 
when they live as they are supposed to, when the church is rightly ordered, uh, it adorns the doctrine of Christ, our Savior, uh, in all things. So, so the grounds for all of this teaching is then rooted in the grace of the gospel and the hope of glory in verses 11 through 15. He says, For or because the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Uh, so the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is at the root of all of the teaching that he has given us about the life of the church. In verses 1 through 2 of chapter 3, he says to remind them to live quiet, peaceable lives. So here it is again. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. So this theme of leading quiet, peaceable lives has been in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, and now in Titus as well. Um, in verse 3, he says the alternative uh, is what we were apart from Christ, before we knew Christ, that we, were, uh, we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's what we were without Christ. But with Christ, we're different now, and so we live differently. And so he then says, in verses 4 through 7, that we've been changed by Christ, not our own effort, but by the work of God in us. And it's a beautiful passage there, verses 4 through 7, um, where he speaks about this, how he has poured out on us, in verse 6, abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, um, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So, <clears throat> because we've been changed, we li live these new lives. We live our lives in light of what has been done in us and in light of eternity as well. Because, he says in verse 7, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Uh, so again, we're looking forward to eternity. In verse 8, uh, he says that Titus is to affirm constantly uh, these things that he is instructing him in so that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. So what are these good works? He had said that the false teachers uh, were disqualified from good works, that they, by their works, had denied God, and their works had been trying to keep the law for the justification. Here, Paul says that we are to be careful to maintain good works, and I would argue that the good works he's speaking of are all of the things he has just told us about how we are to live our lives. So, older men, you want to know what your good works are? We'll go back to chapter 2, verse 2. Be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love, and in patience. Younger men, go to verse 6 through 8. Younger women, go to verse 4. Older women, go to verse 3. Those are our good works. Those are the things that please God. Those are the things that are profitable to the church, profitable to men. And you would notice that, all that those things in verse 5, in verse 8, and in verse 10 all reflected outside the church. These are our good works, how we live our lives as God's people, as God's family, and they affect people outside the church as well. 
that the word of God may not be blasphemed, that our opponents may be ashamed and have nothing evil to say, that the doctrine of God our Savior is adorned, uh, made beautiful in the eyes of those who are witnessing our lives together as God's people. In verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, he then says that by contrast, uh, we are to avoid foolish disputes, that we are to avoid division and contention uh, within the church. Uh, And then, interestingly, he says uh, in verse 10, to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition. So, Titus had been instructed that he was to uh, rebuke the false teachers, the people who are spreading uh, these deceitful things, and that he was to instruct them so that they would be sound in the faith. But here he says that after the first and second admonition, if they continue in their false teaching, they are to be rejected. You're to have nothing to do with them. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that reject a divisive man here literally means reject a divisive man. In other words, he says it means exactly what Paul said. There's no way of getting around it. If somebody has been rebuked twice for false spreading, false teaching, for spreading lies uh, within the church, and they don't repent, they don't learn sound doctrine, they continue to spread false teaching, they are to be rejected out of the church. Uh, we saw quite a bit of that uh, in our study through Second Timothy as well, that we are to have nothing to do with them. We are to shut them out, knowing, he says in verse 11, that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Uh, so that person is to be put out of the church. And then in verses 12 through 15, we have our final greetings and our farewell. Uh, interestingly, uh, he does say in verse, four, in verse 13 that they are to send Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. Uh, so here's a couple of men who are going on some journey. The church is supposed to send them and make sure that they are uh, equipped for the journey, that they have the supplies they need. And then in verse 14, and let our people also learn to maintain good works to meet urgent needs that they may not be unfruitful. So uh, our good works that we outlined earlier do include not just those things, but include meeting needs as well. And so, you know, we think about good works. We often think about caring for the poor and the needy, the downtrodden. Those are good works. Not saying they're not, but Paul's main focus here was on how we live our lives as the church. Uh, But he does make this point in verse 14 that our good works also include meeting the needs of others. Mark Dever, in his uh, comments on this book of Titus, said this. He said, one of the most important things that any pastor or elder will do for you is to work hard to know the scripture in order to protect you from false teaching. Uh, Titus had been instructed that he was to appoint elders in the church, and then he was instructed in what was to be taught in the church by those elders and by Titus himself. Uh, That is the main uh, purpose of the elders, is to teach the word of God. Uh, We're not to teach our opinions. We're not to teach the opinions of men or what is currently popular uh, in pop psychology or what else. This is what we are to teach. Uh, This is the authority, not the elder. It's God's words that are the authority. And so the elder is to teach these things and proclaim these things because it is by God's word, by his 
truth that we are sanctified. And that's, that's what this is all about in 1 Timothy and in Titus uh, when he's instructing these various groups of people how we are to live together as God's people. He's really talking about our sanctification, about our growth uh, in Christ-likeness and in living uh, lives of holiness that reflect the salvation that we have, the grace that we have experienced in Christ. Uh, and so that is uh, 1 Timothy and Titus, and next week we'll pick up 2 Timothy and Philemon. Uh, let's pray.